Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Uh, what disgusts you, Julie? What, uh, what what do you regularly encounter in the world around you that sets off the disgust center of your brain? I was thinking about this, and for me, it's... Um I mean, I do have some visual disgust. Like, for instance, if I watch Clockwork Orange and I see the scene where they're peeling back his eyes and they've got the little hooks right on his the, the lids of his eyes, that just disgusts me. It makes my stomach turn. Mm-hmm. Um, somehow, something about eyes really... And, and poking at eyes okay. is disgusting to me. But more than anything, I think smells. Smells. Yeah, because okay. it could be just something as, you know, uh, normal as, hey, there's some stinky garbage or cigarette butts. That kind of makes me recoil. Hmm. What about well, yourself? Well, I mean, certainly a, a bad odor uh, will get to me. Uh, but I guess things that seem like uh, unhygienic things often give me the all over. It's like if I'm, uh, if there's somebody on, on, on the train and they're coughing without covering their mouth, mm. I'm just kind of like, ugh. Mm-hmm. Or the time I saw the chicken lady on the train. Uh, have I mentioned this before? I do believe I've heard of the chicken she was, lady. And she was eating um, an entire, ro- well, she had a rotisserie chicken. <laughs> that had been that she had been eating on, and it was down to just like the little sort of gray slivers, and she was picking the meat off of it mm-hmm. on the train, and then she would touch the pole on the train, and then she would go back to eating her chicken, which just totally freaked me out. I basically had to had to switch cars at that point, you know, things things of that nature, where I'm like, this is kind of gross, and the part of my brain is just wanting me to flee for for fear of all the diseases rolling off the situation. Right, right. It's like you're having this this uh, really powerful <laughs> feeling for yeah. a reason, right? Your body, your mind, everything is telling you, like, back away right now. Um, and there's a reason for this, and we're going to talk about that. Um, I asked Jonathan Strickland of Tech Stuff what disgusted him, and he gave me a very specific answer, that it was maggots emerging from carcasses because hmm. you might mistake the movement under the skin for something else, and then they emerge and uh, chaos ensues. Ah, well, there's a there's a great example of that in uh, the uh, the book The Wasp Factory that actually ends up driving a character uh, insane. That's a Banks book from the guy did the uh, Culture series. Ah, so look okay. it up if you want to be disgusted. But why are we disgusted, right? Why why does this happen, and where does it occur in nature? Um, where does it occur in the brain? Why why is it such a part of who we are? Well, Joshua Tiber of the U University, excuse me, in Amsterdam proposed three domains of disgust. Okay. Three separate psychological programs. Yep. Okay. And they all make sense, right? Disease avoidance, which you talked about. Right. People Mate. coughing on the train. Yep. With, uh, putting all their, their chicken juice on the poles. Mm-hmm. Uh, that just sounded wrong. Mate choice and moral judgment. Okay. Well, see, like all three of those are rolled up in the chicken lady. Because. Because I'm, I'm, I'm like, that's gross and potentially going to spread a disease. I really don't want to mate with you. Mm-hmm. And uh, morally, I think it's, and also, it's, yeah, morally, it's against the rules to eat on the train. What the heck are you doing? Um, yeah, yeah, it's a little bit reprehensible to sit there and basically, you know, essentially like lick your hands and the chicken and then just put it all over everything for other people to come upon and transfer to themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Though if you touch one of those poles with your bare skin, I mean, you're really asking for it. You are. I always hook an arm. That's yeah. What I do. Yeah. Or wear a glove. Or just pull your sleeve down. Yeah. Or That's just, good or just fall. Better to fall on the floor than to touch that pole. Uh, yep. Rolling around on that floor is probably a lot better. Um, apparently, there is a look of disgust that is universal. 
So when we feel disgusted, this look crosses over our faces. Um, and what it is, and this is according to Paul Ekman of the University of California at San Francisco, the look is a screwing up of our noses and pulling down at the corners of our mouths. You're doing it right now. Yeah, yeah you look a little disgusted. <laughs> and every culture all over the world, this is the look of disgust. This sort of, ugh. Yeah. Yeah, look. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, you're in another country, you're disgusted by something. Just keep that in mind that if you happen to be over at someone's home in another country and they're cooking you something and it's maybe not uh, something that you would try at your own home, uh, try not to screw your nose up. Yeah, because it's something universal. It's not like, uh, oh, in this country a thumbs up is good, in this country it's fighting word, you know, or like, right. uh, or turn you know, the whole thing, like if you turn your, your glass upside down in Australia, it means you're... You're challenging everyone in the bar to a fight. But, Good to uh, know. Good well, to know. I, I can't back that up. That's one thing I've heard. Our Australian listeners will sort us out on that. But uh, Yeah, yeah. Uh, or the soles of your shoes in Egypt, right? That I think yeah. I believe that's a put down. Um, or, or like uh, in Thailand, uh, like setting so that your your shoe is pointing at somebody. Yeah. That's that's bad, you know. But here, nobody cares. No, they don't. Yeah. You point your shoes all you want. Uh, but Charles Darwin actually tackled this subject before in the paper, The Expression of the Emotions in Man and Animals. And he described the face of disgust as if one were expelling some horrible tasting substance from the mouth. Mm-hmm. So there has been, you know, historical interest in disgust, but as of late, it's actually getting some, some legs, as you would say, in terms of being studied in earnest. Dr. Valerie Curtis of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine is a disgustologist. Oh, yeah. In fact. And she says disgust is in our everyday life. It determines our hygiene behaviors. It determines how close we get to people. It determines who we're going to kiss, who we're going to mate with, who we're going to sit next to. It determines the people that we shun, and that is something that we do a lot of. Yeah, and you look at the list of things that are typically associated with disgust, um, and certainly some of the ones we already mentioned are on there. I mean, you know, the basic bodily secretion issues, feces, vomit, sweat, spit blood, pus, sexual fluids. Mm-hmm. Body parts, wounds, corpses, toenail clippings, decaying food, certain living creatures like the maggots, like lice, like yep. worms, rats, some people dogs and cats, which are to each their own, and then uh, and then individuals who are ill, the diseased. Right. Again, there's, there's that visual of, ah, oh, that person is someone I need to back away from. Um, but yeah, in the body parts uh, universals list that you're talking about, toenail clippings came up. Yeah. And I thought that was really interesting because I thought I feel the same way. And I, um, I always attributed it to being some sort of weird idea that I had that someone might take my toenail clippings and oh, the, the cast a spell against exactly. me. Exactly. I mean, that's uh, the old uh, magic of be careful with your hair, stuff into the side of you. you know, right. Get, don't, don't let anybody get a hold of your brush or they could get, cast magical spells against you. Right. Yeah, these and, irrational fears that we have. Yeah, and it's actually interesting uh, – well, you know, in the past, we've discussed sympathetic magic, and mm-hmm. uh, our attitudes towards disgust are somewhat wrapped up in sympathetic magic. Like the, you know, the idea that say um, something that has come into contact with something gross is therefore gross, uh, we, which is a which as a basic physical rule tends to apply. You know, if the fork has been in the toilet, you're not going to eat with the fork. Even if you clean it, sometimes you right. Know, I don't right. know why the you're always going to toilet, have this but, yeah. association of the. The fork in the toilet trying to spear something. Right. But then our, um, you know, humans have the ability to really uh, get out and take things and uh, extrapolate them to uh, ridiculous uh, levels. So you end up with situations where you, I mean, this is where we end up with things like the idea that certain individuals are untouchable because they they have a particular job in society that uh, that puts them in contact with foul things or foul ideas, mm-hmm. 
even, you know, it, it, it ends up becoming a part of this sympathetic magic and the idea that something can be not only um, befouled but uh, besmirched, you know. Yeah, and we'll talk about that a little bit more, too, later, but the cultural aspect of it and what you're talking about um, in sympathetic magic, because that is really a bit, such mm-hmm. an interesting uh, psychological component to this. Yeah, but back to the, the physiological, I found an interesting... Um, uh, description of this in the uh, the book uh, Clean, A History of Personal Hygiene and Purity by Virginia Smith, which I think I've mentioned before. It's just a great book on the history of, of hygiene and uh, how hygiene ends up uh, becoming interwoven with these ideas of, of purity. But uh, she refers to uh, the nervous reflex of disgust and repulsion as a physiological safety net. Which I think okay. t- you know ties in nicely with the with the with the disease and uh, uh, and, and mating aspect of this uh, trifecta of repulsion. Okay, all right, I can see that. All right, so diving into the brain, where is this taking place? When I when I see the chicken lady on the uh, <laughs> on the train, like like what's lighting up? If someone were to strap me into um, you know an fMRI or something? Yeah, if we could see, scan your brain, we would see a lot of activity in the insula and the amygdala, as yeah. well as other and especially uh, the frontal insula. Mm-hmm. It's an area of the brain that, uh, in, in addition to uh, to deep seated disgust, you have uh, you also have things such as uh, addiction is sometimes tied up there as well. So it's not it's not like just the uh, repulsion center of the brain. Um, there have been studies that have shown that uh, people with damage to this uh, uh, portion of the brain were actually able to give up cigarettes instantly. Huh. So, uh, th- th- so there's a lot going on there. But one of the things that is that is definitely going on there is repulsion. Yeah, and amygdala, of course, is processing emotions. So right. That that makes sense. That you're seeing the chicken lady on Marta, the train system, and. Uh, you're, you're starting to form all of those opinions mm-hmm. and having a very big gut reaction to it. It's also the, like if you were to receive a sensual touch from one significant other, uh, that also ends up uh, resonating in the insula. So there's a lot of physical stimuli uh, and sensual stimuli from the world around you. you. You wind up figuring out what you're supposed to do with it. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting that you actually just brought up um, someone that you know um, touching you because in a lot of these studies, and this is going to sound like a no-doubt moment, but of course we find the people that we know less disgusting than the people that we don't know. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of that is because you know, there's a familiarity there, even if that person is truly disgusting. Right. <laughs> um, but there's less of an opportunity to objectify that person. And maybe on some level you're like, okay, well, they're not maybe the cleanest of people, mm-hmm. but they're no threat to me. I know this. Right. I know my immune system knows that there's no threat. Well, here's the t- this one actually came up among some friends. Where do you stand on using a spouse's toothbrush? Um, okay, well, in a situation where it's the, the only choice, then I'm fine with it. Okay. But when I've accidentally done it, or my daughter grabbed my toothbrush actually this morning, and I was like, no, no, <laughs> which was kind of ridiculous because um, certainly, you know, I eat some of her sandwiches, she eats some of mine, and we are all exchanging um, sandwiches. Sandwiches. And, uh, well, that makes you sound a little like birds, but. Yeah, we are. Yeah. We have okay. a little giant nest. Um, but yeah, and, you know, kissing and everything. So. Yeah, all the germs are being passed between one mm-hmm. another. Well, I found just in the, the few people I've talked to, like they, they tend to range. There's some people that are like, yeah, like I'm, you know, you're on a trip and you only have one toothbrush in the bag. It's no big deal. Yeah. And then other people are like, ugh, you, you know, absolutely not. One person gets to brush their teeth on that trip kind of a thing. Well, it's kind of like my germs, just my germs, okay? You, right. No, no one else's germs, um, which is just silly and funny. Yeah. Um, I guess that we just feel really... Like we've got quite a connection with all of the bacteria on our body, which we've talked about. It's mm-hmm. like you know, there's tenfold of uh, foreign bacteria to 
to our own cells. So, hey, I guess we start to feel a little bit fuzzy and lovey for our own bacteria. Um, but anyway, let's talk about disgust from an evolutionary standpoint. Yeah, like what sense does it make um, evolving? I mean, obviously, uh, the, the the big take home here is to avo- is avoiding disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, for uh, for an organism to be successful, it doesn't need it needs to not get taken down by uh, by predators, but it also has to avoid the ailments that will weaken it, uh, either unto death or into the hands of these predators. Right. So, I mean, you know, it makes sense that we would have these sort of uh, you know, signals for us to visual cues, smell cues that mm-hmm. would make us stop in our tracks and reassess or reevaluate because this is how we have been so successful as a species, right? Right. This ability to step back and, and evaluate and say this might be something that would be harmful to me. Right. We talked about some of this in the uh, the science of stink where we were um, we were talking about how like a like you you get hit with a bad smell and uh, the bad smell will hit you square in the face and, and, and it's your brain's way of saying something is wrong here. This is uh, potentially poisonous or disease ridden mm-hmm. in some way, shape or form. So you need to at least uh, think about it before you touch it. If not, just completely avoid it uh, entirely. Yeah, in fact, the New York Times has an article called The Ick Factor, and mm-hmm. in it they talk about how smell is causes such a powerful response in the brain that the U.S. Army has been trying to develop a stink bomb <laughs> with an odor foul enough to be used for riot control, mm-hmm. and that police are very interested in it. So it makes sense. I mean, that's the kind of reaction you would have, right, that it could disperse crowds because if something that your body is yelling, this is bad for me. Right, without necessarily the uh, more adverse reactions one's encounter, one encounters with, like, tear gas and uh, and the like. Rubber bullets. And- well, rubber, yeah, rubber bullets. <laughs> yeah. And I was actually thinking about this, too, uh, it just in terms of my own personal experiences uh, with getting ill. And this doesn't happen every single time, but it's more likely than not that a couple days before I get ill, I will have a, a dream, mm-hmm. actually. And in the dream, I have to use the bathroom, but the only bathroom that's available to me is one that's a public restroom. Okay. And as soon as I walk in it, I realize that is the most disgusting public restroom I have ever been in. It's feces encrusted everywhere. Ugh. Like every, you could not touch something that's clean if you tried. And in the dream, I always look down, and I'm barefoot, oh. and there's a stream of urine and phlegm oh. and everything that you could possibly. Phlegm? Yeah, it's the it's, seriously. If you've ever seen train spotting, it makes that that bathroom and train spotting look really spick and span. Um, but this is, and I always have this dream, and I always wake up, I go, oh, and I have had it so much that it's obvious to me now that I'm about to get sick, and it's my body trying to tell me something. But it wasn't until we were doing this research that I realized that just what a big signal my mind and body were trying to transmit to me. Wow. Have you tried hitting that uh, scenario with any lucid dreaming ever? Well, here's the thing. I mean, I can lucid dream most of the time, but uh-huh. it's always, it, it happens. Like, have you ever decided, like, I'm going to clean this bathroom, you turn into, like, cleaning Superwoman, and you just spiff it all no, up? No, because my, because what happens is the way it unfolds is that I am, uh, I look down and my feet are now, you know, in the muck. Oh. And so I have no, ch- I can't, even I can't turn back. It doesn't matter. I'm exposed is the point of the dream. <laughs> okay. So because, yeah, because sometimes I thought, oh, really? Seriously, can I just go to another restroom? But it's too late. <laughs> but there you go. So, I mean, these these are all things, you know, feces, um, whatever else is hiding away in that public restroom that portend, 
potential disease and illness, right? Those are right. the things that we look at and we have such a strong reaction to. And even in the animal world, I mean, anyone who's had a, a pet, I mean, granted, if you, you have a dog, it does seem at times like the, like a dog is disgusted by nothing. But, but even even dogs will occasionally encounter something where they're like they're visibly not wanting any of it. They'll uh, they may not actually smirk their face up, but they will move away from it. Uh, they will kind of see it in their ears. Right, right, and uh, you know certainly in my cat, I've seen you know him do that, back mm-hmm. off on things, um, and, and especially like if it's chemical too. Yeah, he, he seems to have a problem with that, which is pretty good. All right, well let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we will get into uh, OCD. All right, we're back. Uh, obsessive compulsion disorder, right? Yep. Um, how does that tie in with the whole disgust scenario? Okay, well, just uh, so everybody knows, this is something that affects about 3.3 million people between the ages of 18 and 54 in the United States alone. And the classic example that's often thrown around is the like someone who compulsively washes their hands. Mm-hmm. Like their hands cannot, I mean, they're, they're basically Lady Macbeth because their hands never feel completely clean. So. Exactly. So um, in the context of disgust, researchers were interested to see how people with OCD dealt with things that uh, were disgusting for mm-hmm. those people. And in a study by the University of Florida's Evelyn F. and William L. McKnight Brain Institute, researchers compared the reactions of eight people with com- contamination preoccupation OCD, okay, mm-hmm. so a lot of hand washing, uh, with a group of healthy adults to a set of 30 pictures that had been rated in terms of emotional impact. So um, the pictures that we're talking about had a series of threatening, disgusting, or neutral images like snakes bearing their fangs, Carrie, uh, yeah. flies on pumpkin pie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's gross. Yeah. Yeah. What? You just swatted away. <laughs> uh, okay. See, we have different disgustometers, right? Yeah, right I, I don't, do not like flies landing on my food. I I figure, like you know, it's kind of one of those things you drop the food on the floor. Three second rule. Same thing with a fly. I mean, I'm gonna probably still eat it. Okay. Um, all right. And the other picture they had was a picture of a sunset. Lovely, right? Yeah. Uh, and then they had MRI scan- scans of their brains, and researchers found that pictures that induced fear or disgust prompted reactions in different parts of the brain in both groups of participants. But the level of stimulation in certain areas of the brain prompted by the disgusting images was greater with people with OCD or greater for people with OCD. Um, and this is really interesting, too. The areas of the brain most affected by these images included those that process unpleasant taste and smells. Hmm. So the difference suggests that obsessive people driven to behaviors like constant hand-washing may be motivated by their extreme sensitivity to disgust and not, as commonly thought, by their fear of some sort of awful outcome um, if they were to stop washing their hands. Okay. So it's not just it's not a, like a conscious thing like I have to wash my hands or I'm going to catch the plague. It's uh, it's it's tied up on, on a much more primal level. Right? Yeah. Exactly. I mean, the and, and I found that absolutely um, fascinating because you think about OCD and you think about hand washing and you think about it as some sort of crazy prevention method, mm-hmm. but in fact, it is that they are they're having this reaction that's so heartfelt that you know they're overreacting to the, the stimuli in front of them. Right, which is why, I mean, it's like you're not going to talk somebody out of OCD. You're not going to be able to reason them out because it's not coming from a seat of reason. Uh, you know, you're not going to be able to right. say, like, well, logically, you're washing your hands too much and you're actually doing more damage to your skin, blah, blah, blah. 
Yeah, it's not going to happen. Well, especially if your amygdala, too, is having such an overreaction. I mean, these are things that are going on undercover that you don't even know. So Mm -hmm. it's not like you could, I mean, I guess unless you're some sort of Zen master, maybe you could step back and, you know, dial down your your brainwaves there. Um, But most likely, you know, this is something that you can't necessarily control. All right. Now, uh, uh, when one thinks of, like, disgust reactions, uh, especially to smell, uh, instantly think of uh, pregnant women. Yeah, because I mean that's uh, I mean that that's just one of those things. It's like a like if anyone who has who has been pregnant or has a pregnant friend, there's the whole thing about like suddenly like it'll be like something like garlic will totally set some people off, and they're like they can't even be in the same room with somebody who just had breadsticks. It's true. Yeah, you get uh, very sensitive to it very quickly. Did you find this to be the case? I did. Yeah, no. not the entire time, but certain times where I was just like, oh man, and my husband would be like, what What are you smelling? I'd be like, I don't know, like thirty yards away, someone just had some bok choy with some, <laughs> with some ginger and curry, and the curry is just really very pungent. Oh, I thought you were going to get the bok choy is the culprit because oh. bok choy doesn't really smell like anything. Uh, you know, after it's cooked, though, it's quite buttery, and it kind of smells buttery. Oh, yeah. yeah, it does have a buttery odor. Yeah. But even things that really weren't offensive, I was just picking up on them. And sometimes things that weren't offensive became inoffensive. Um, but this is because what they found is that pregnant women um, have elevated levels of progesterone. Yeah. Now, this is a steroid hormone involved in the female menstrual cycle, pregnancy, mm-hmm. and uh, embryogenesis of humans and other species. So that's why the levels are up, uh, obviously, during uh, pregnancy. Yeah. And particularly in the first trimester, mm-hmm. uh, when Derailing uh, fetal development is is um, usually could occur most often during the first trimester. So that's when uh, um, a woman's sensors would be sort of ferreting out what might be dangerous for her to consume. Like a, that's the idea. An easy example of this is, of course, the cat box. Like anyone, like everyone knows, like pregnant ladies don't mess with cat boxes because of the whole uh, um, toxo issue. Toxoplasmosis, yeah. yeah. Um, and, of course, toxoplasmosis, that's an interesting topic unto itself, which we may have to get into uh, at another time. But but uh, obviously pregnant ladies should avoid the cat box. So it would make sense that with, but with the body would, would on some level use the, the logic of, well, she shouldn't go near the cat box. So mm-hmm. let's make the cat box extra stinky mm-hmm. just to... To hinge the bat, you know, just to, just to make sure. Yeah, and didn't you tell, and I know this is definitely something for another time, but you told me an interesting little fact about taxoplasmosis that the little critters, what they do with the cat's mind and the urine, mm-hmm. wasn't it something sort of... Oh, uh, uh, there, there's a lot of fast... I did some research on it uh, a year or two back for uh, an Animal Planet tie-in, and there's, there's all sorts of crazy uh, research on how it alters the behavior of animals, but also people, mm-hmm. uh, like making... Making rats and mice crave the smell of cat urine, so that yeah. it'll basically steer the cat. I mean, steer the the the, the mouse toward the belly of a cat, so mm-hmm. it can can complete its life cycle and can potentially uh, generate uh, or stir up risk taking behavior even in in human males. It's fascinating. We'll have to go into yeah, it in, yeah. In so day, I mean, right? I just that brings me back to the podcast that we did about guts, uh, mm-hmm. gut flora, and how a lot of our behavior is dependent on the bacteria that we have in there. But it, but it's an example just in the whole idea of like cat pee. There's an example of on one hand the body uh, making it uh, tinkering with our disgust reactions to steer one away from uh, the cat urine, and then on the other level you have a parasite hijacking. A rat's natural um, repulsion by that smell mm-hmm. and making it move towards it because it, it the parasite needs the animal to be eaten by a cat. That's just amazing. Yeah, that it could that smell could just you know waft off and say, "Come to me, yeah. <laughs> consume me, rat." 
But let's talk a little bit more about uh, disgust from a cultural perspective. Yes. Uh, so obviously humans have a way of taking things that are sort of natural, you know, that are just a natural process of our bodies. We, we add a couple of layers of reasoning and faulty reasoning and cultural norms on top of that, and things quickly get out of control. So we end up attaching disgust to things that aren't really disgusting. Um, it, it, I mean, it ends up getting tied up in our politics even, certainly in our, our moral views of the world. Yeah, this is really interesting. Uh, Curtis, the dis- disgustologist, was talking about a um, survey that she did in different countries to find out what people found disgusting in those countries. And she uncovered some interesting cultural pecul- peculiarities. Uh, for example, food cooked by a menstruating woman was a frequent cause of disgust in India. Oh, Again, yeah. sympathetic mm-hmm. magic here, right? right. Like, okay, I- I- I'm assuming that it was assumed that if they ate this food that was cooked by a menstruating woman that maybe they would their masculinity would be uh, downgraded i'm not sure or there's maybe just such disgust in that culture with that particular um part of of the body so yeah, to I mean, say not being in that culture right i mean because on one level yes you would not want someone who is physically ill cooking your food mm-hmm. for uh, for obvious reasons so if you if you end up creating this fallacy that the menstruating woman is unclean then and then then it makes a twisted kind of sense that you would not want them cooking for you. But again, a twisted kind of sense that emerges from our our, uh, our human complication of all yeah, things uh, biological. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's funny because even if someone went to use the bathroom and then cooked your food, mm-hmm. right, you're still, there, there's still this idea that you could bring some sort of contaminant from that atmosphere. So, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's, I, I could see how maybe some of this is this idea that menstruating women are unclean, but so are people who just use the bathroom. Yeah, right. Sure. <laughs> you know, the, the same logic there. Um, but also Curtis uncovered that apparently the Dutch thinks that fat people are disgusting too. So huh. it just kind of differs in each culture. Well, here's something I I do find disgusting that kind of falls into this weird territory. And that is people talking on the phone in the bathroom. That I think is just bad form. Yeah. And I, if, if I will say that if someone is doing that, I will belch <laughs> as loudly as I can because I feel like this is some sort of place that a retreat that I could actually go and use the bathroom and not feel bad about it because it's a bathroom. Right. I mean, I, I I'm not going to name any names, but there was an individual uh, that works for this company mm-hmm. that was talking on the phone while very audibly going number two in the men's room, and it was weird. Like, who, like, who are you? Do you either a are you just so con- are you a so confident that the other person on the other, on the other line is not going to hear any of these sounds, or b do you just not care? Like, is it not that important of a <laughs> yeah. contact? I don't know how I feel about that. Like, do I admire that, or am I kind of slightly disgusted? I mean, that is yeah. that's got a lot of chutzpah. Yeah, you know, to to sit down and do that. And then, I mean, how would how would you react if you heard somebody? Go- I mean, I think David Sedaris had a bit about this, like talking to his sister and finding out that she had. Uh, that she had been talking while going to the bathroom, and that if anyone, uh, what she would do is just pretend that she was opening a jar. If she had to audibly <laughs> strain, she would just be like, oh, just a second, I've got to get this jar. Um, and that would her, be her way of explaining away from it. But but then it also reminds me to keep the comedy uh, train going here. I remember a Kids in the Hall skit where um, it came out that like there was a fan, you know an all-male board meeting, and they're going over uh, some 
uh, some sort of uh, like product reviews or something, and they're reading uh, one of these uh, these reviews, and then uh, one of the, one of the individuals notices the like a weird smile on the guy who wrote its face, mm-hmm. and he, he realizes, oh, did you write this naked? And then everyone just feels kind of dirty for it. Which I think is, it, you know, it's a, it's a ridiculous extreme comedy example, but it, it does illustrate a lot of the complexity of our repulsion, uh, to things, you know, because the idea that somebody wrote something naked that's so far removed from anything that could potentially, I mean, it's, it's not, it, it doesn't tie into the mating disgust, the, the moral disgust, mm-hmm. really, or, and certainly not the disease disgust. But you could see, like, it makes it, you could, makes enough sense where you could imagine somebody finding it. Uh, repulsive. Well, it's, I mean, certainly there are some Victorian ideas about nudity, right, mm-hmm. that could, you know, make someone think about um, or be, be repulsed by nudity. I mean, certainly Freud had ideas yeah. about um, sex and uh, the repulsion behind it. Um, and, you know, again, there's this idea of, of illness and disease that could be transmitted through sex. So, right. I get sympathetic magic, right? Right. You're naked. All of a sudden, uh, you write something, and 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 that's going to transfer uh, the clap. I will say that in the last year, uh, How Stuff Works has relaxed its teleworking pr- uh, program somewhat. Mm-hmm. So you have more people working from home, more people writing from home, and invariably more people writing naked. So uh, there there are, there are probably more articles on How Stuff Works than ever before written by naked people, and it's uh, it's. <laughs> It, it fortunately, like I say, nothing yeah. will actually come of that. I, I'm just thinking about everybody on their smartphones right now who, who are looking up related articles and now feeling maybe a little bit dirty. Yeah. I wonder how many of our listeners are naked right now. You don't have to tell us. You don't us, have to. But, uh, fine. but I mean, some of them are going to sleep. Some people sleep naked. It's just how it goes. It's true. They yeah. do. Um, okay. So. So, yeah, we kind of got off the subject there. It is cultural, though. Um, and although. Some people say that we have this encoded, you know, hardwired in us, mm-hmm. right, to ferret out disgust, and it's to our advantage to do so. But uh, Paul Rosen, he's a psychologist um, who is at the University of Pennsylvania, and he's considered a pioneer of modern disgust research, carried out his own survey on things people found disgusting and discovered that causes of death rated the highest amongst his North American subjects. Really? Like even things like a sword would be disgusting? Because a sword is like the least disgusting I think least, that it's, it's pretty more, undisgusting. Yeah, well, I mean, it can be. I mean, it could have little bits of brain hanging off of it. Well, even that's more awesome than disgusting. You yeah, know? I agree. Yeah. But I think he means that there are probably instances of disgust that could lead to death, okay. right? As opposed to just being like, oh, you know, stepping back and, and being for a moment out of joint about it. And he says that anything that reminds us we are animals elicits disgust. Disgust functions like a defense mechanism to keep human animalness out of awareness. Okay. So things like, for instance, the cloaca bot uh, that we know and love. Yes. Like the thing that makes that art installation brilliant is that it does kind of force you to to think about your own uh, biological functions and what that means. Yeah. And just to um, refresh everybody's memory, this is the Cloaca bot that um, I can't remember. Uh, Vim. Yeah. Anderson, he's, uh, he's Belgian. Maybe. Uh, yeah. Something along this line. Lives in China now. Okay. So this is yeah. the artist, and he had the Cloaca bot, and he had uh, during the installation a chef feed the bot three times a day, and then he would add. Um, certain little chemicals that would mimic digestion. Yeah, it would like travel through like I think six different tanks and then come out uh, the other end onto a little conveyor belt. And it would be stone cold poo. Yeah. So, again, you're talking about the disgust element there. And one of the articles we read said that the little girl seeing 
this contraption in this really sterile environment started crying. <laughs> so, um, you know, we again, we all have different reactions to, to this. All right. Well, let's call over our uh, sterile, uh, totally non-disgusting robot to bring us some uh, hygienic mail to read. Yeah, we do not feed that robot three times a day and then <laughs> give it chemicals to uh, pretend like it's going to do its thing. Just for the record. Cool. Well, here's one. I uh, here's one we he- heard from uh, a listener by the name of Stephen. Stephen writes in, uh, and you know, I'm not even sure which uh, podcast he's responding to because it was kind of a tangent, I think. But uh, he says, I-, "I was actually near my computer to write this up when I finally caught up with some older back episodes I didn't have time to listen to." Thai Red Bull is terrifying. I did a study abroad in Chiang Mai in 2001, and after a couple guys got back from Christmas vacation in the islands, they introduced us to a truly horrific cocktail. In a pitcher of ice, add one bottle of Mekong whiskey, uh, two cans of Coke, and two bottles of Thai Red Bull. I usually stuck to beer, but it was a recipe um, for disaster for my compatriots. Tons of energy and way too few inhibitions. Not to mention the rumors that Mekong whiskey is not fit for sale in the U.S. for human consumption due to a number of questionable additives. Huh, I did not know that. I, I had some Mekong whiskey. When you I was did? There, yeah. If you're not drinking beer in Thailand, like the other big drink, uh-huh. it's like a Coke, uh, uh, like, a, like a whiskey and Coke kind of a thing. Uh, and like some of the, like I remember reading, uh, like in some bars, you, you go to the bar with your whiskey bottle. And they serve you Coke and ice and a little uh, seltzer water in it. And But you get to use your own whiskey. I guess there's like a corking fee. I, I can't remember the detail on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then sometimes if you don't drink it all, they will keep it for you. And you come back. They'll put your name on it. You come back and you get it the next night. So uh, huh. So it's like I'm not a, a beer drinker. And that's like a, and it was a real Thai drink. So I was like, oh, I should probably have that while I'm over there. I didn't know that it might have had questionable additives that could be doing who knows what uh anyway uh steven continues you can occasionally find those little glass bottles of rocket fuel in um, southeast asian grocery stores i've had the um the red bull cans in china and i can honestly say i'm not sure which is worse uh, it has enough caffeine to completely shut off a migraine but i wouldn't be surprised if it also uh, causes heart problems anyway great job always always on the podcast and i think um i should be all caught up after this very slow day at work so all right you. Yeah, yeah. I, I believe I put out a call. Like, has anyone else had an experience with Thai Red Bull? Because when I had one in Thailand, it was it was like crazy uh, stimulating. Yeah, I was about to say we've heard from a few people, and the the, the um, consensus seems to be that it's diabolical. <laughs> and then we have uh, let's see another quick one here. This is uh, from a listener by the name of Stevie. Stevie writes in and says, "Hey guys, I just uh, was just listening to your Neo Evolution podcast, where the end you made reference to the 999 Candles podcast, and it got me thinking." If we did genetically mutate ourselves or have the ability to replace parts over the years so we could live this long, do you think women would have the uh, reproductive capabilities to last longer than 50 years until they reach menopause? Just a thought uh, on all of this. I mean, if we replaced our reproductive organs over the years, I'm not sure those eggs would end up being our own, maybe a genetically engineered version. Uh, But how would this affect the offspring we have with them in the future? Thought this was something good to chew on. Keep on casting your pods while at the show. Cool. Yeah, that's an interesting proposition, and certainly it, I would think that on the horizon would be something like a uterine replicator. Yeah, I mean, it's like, like, uh, like our friend uh, Aubrey de Grey. The bearded one? The bearded one, like the, you know, point out, it's like a car. Uh, the human body has all these parts. They wear down either due to use or abuse, and the idea is to better maintain the vehicle, which at times might mean replacing parts. Right, and it also may mean that procreation gets moved to the lab in yeah. some instances. So, yeah. um, 
Meh. That's food for thought for another podcast, I believe. Yeah. In fact, maybe one we're going to record next. We kind of touch on it, I think, in the one we're going to yeah. record next. Um, well, hey, anyway, uh, Stevie, thanks for uh, the thoughts. I love it when people take uh, topics we bring up in one podcast and combine them with another and start mixing it together. I mean, that's what the whole podcast is really about, about, uh, you know, stirring up the old mind juices and uh, seeing what uh, pops at the surface. And, and keeping them in your head because <laughs> otherwise the juices well, keep them might in your leak head, out but, but express and disgust them. people. Express them well, yeah, express yeah. them yeah. through the mighty pen. Yeah, exactly. Keyboard. So, hey, if you want to share something with us, uh, where can you find us? Well, uh, you can find us on Facebook. Uh, we are Stuff to Blow the Mind on there. And, uh, you know, we have a wall. We put photos on the wall. We put videos. We put links to what we're doing, streams of the podcast, all sorts of good stuff. And then we also have a Twitter account, which is Below the Mind. And, hey, we would love to hear from you via email. and Particularly, we'd love to find out what your pet disgust is. So um, send us a letter. Let us know via BlowTheMind at Discovery.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House of Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow.